here's a question, all right? So we're saying, like Paul's critics in Romans 6, right? Paul says, hey, if we sin, even if we sin greatly, grace abounds all the more, right? So then Paul's critics say what? Well, now wait a second. If where sin increases, grace abounds, then shouldn't we just, what, keep sinning? That we'll get more grace? What does Paul say? <laughs> By no means. You know, he just, he's, you know, he's like, no way. You know, no way can that be true. But wh- how can it not be true? All right. Here's what I want you to see, okay? All we've talked about up here is saying God is some way. Now, you, you, you recognize we're just touching just a little bit of what Chet's going to have to lead you through over time. But we're saying the grace of God is unfolding in all of Scripture. It may just be a little seed of grace. It may not be the full message, but somehow God is saying, i got to rescue you. You can't rescue yourself. Okay? Somehow God is saying that. Why is he doing that? I'm going to ask you a question, and it's this basic question. Where is there the power for the Christian life? Okay? Because ultimately the reason that we are preaching to people is we want to see them transformed, right? We're not just kind of saying, you know, there's a testimony you're going to get an A on. I mean, we're actually wanting people's lives to be transformed. So the question is, where do people get the power to change? And ultimately I'm going to say the reason that we are trying to find the grace in all of Scripture is ultimately because it is the power of the gospel for transformed lives. That and that alone. Guilt is not the power of transformed lives. Fear is not the power of transformed lives. Grace is ultimately the power of transformed lives. And let me show you how we get there. Okay. You already recognize under Roman numeral 4, where it says the power of Christ-centered preaching, isn't there a problem if we keep assuring people of God's love? Now, remember I mentioned John Bunyan before, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, and the one, The Magic Mirror. Remember The Magic Mirror? Now, Bunyan is known not only for Pilgrim's Progress and The Magic Mirror. Remember you're in... But also, do you remember when you were in third grade and you learned to spell anti-disestablishmentarianism? Remember that? Do you remember that? <laughs> and you went home to impress your parents with, Mom, I can spell anti-disestablishmentarianism. Well, actually, um, John Bunyan was one of those anti-establishmentarians, believe it or not. Okay, And by that I mean John Bunyan was a Reformed Baptist who did not believe that the king should establish who the clergy were in England. Okay, he thought the church should establish who the clergy were, not the king. So the king was not to establish the clergy. Now, Bunyan's thrown in prison, okay? And he doesn't know if he's going to have his head the next day, okay? But thrown into prison with him were those who were known as the Anabaptists, okay? Now, the Anabaptists on the Reformed Arminian swing here, they're at the opposite end, okay? So Bunyan is saying, you're saved by the grace of God, not by your works. And the Anabaptists are saying, yeah, you're saved by the grace of God and your works. <laughs> you know? And, you know, if you don't work well enough, you can lose your salvation, all that. But the Anabaptists also believe that the king should not establish who the clergy were. So they're thrown in prison too. Okay, now think of it. you got these Christians, all right? They're in prison. They don't know they're going to be alive the next day. So what do you think they do together at night? They argue theology. <laughs> it's exactly what they do. So the Anabaptists, they, they say to Bunyan, they say, they say, you cannot keep assuring people of God's love. If you keep assuring people of God's love, they'll do whatever they want. And here was Bunyan's famous answer. He said, no, 
if you keep assuring God's people of God's love, they will do whatever He wants. Hear the difference? He's saying something will happen in their hearts. In their minds, is there a logic that will take advantage of grace? Of course. We can't deny that. But he's saying there is a chemistry of the heart that is stronger than the math of the mind. And if God's people hear how great is his love for them, they will be persuaded to walk with him by their own loving affection for him. Now, I want to take you down the path. If you say what actually gives Christians the power to walk the Christian life, the first thing, as basic as it may sound, is the thing that gives people power is knowledge. Okay? And it's right there. They need to know, number one, what honors God and blesses us. In other words, people need to know duty and they need to know doctrine. Okay? I never said we don't teach that. I said that's not all that we teach. But listen, people say, listen, I want to honor God, Pastor. I really want to honor God. Will you, will, will, will you help me know how, how I can walk with God? And you say, no. I'm not going to tell you. You just have to figure it out. You know, you say, well, that's not very helpful. <laughs> you know, no, no. If, if you want me to have power to walk with God, I have to have knowledge of what he wants me to do. Right. So the fact that the deadly bees are insufficient by themselves does not mean we don't preach duty and doctrine. Right. We still have to say you shall not commit adultery. Don't tell lies. Don't steal. Right. So duty is still there. We still say God is still sovereign. You need to know that he knows tomorrow even when you don't, right? So that you'll trust him even when you don't know why you, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. You'll still trust. So duty and doctrine are still necessary to know. But they're not all that you need to know in order to walk with God. After all, recognize this. This is scary, okay? When you preach duty to people and you say, listen... Here's what you ought to do. You know, you know what the sad fact is? Almost always, they knew before you told them. Isn't that right? I mean, did you sit in church and the pastor said, you know what? You should deal with your business associates with integrity. You say, really? Well, I didn't know that. Does the Bible tell me to be honest? Well, I never knew that. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Almost everything you tell people to do, they already knew to do before they even sat down. Does that make them more holy? You know, they happen to be a whole lot like you and me, which means what? We already know what to do, and we still do what? We still sin. So, so knowledge of duty and doctrine, while necessary, are insufficient. So we have to have knowledge of something else. And let's go into that. Not only, this is the what, not only what to do, the other thing that we have to have knowledge of is who we are. Now, this takes us somewhat deep into some theology that's really quite sweet, okay? Who are you? The first thing you need to know about yourself in order to have Christian power is you need to know that you're human. Now, I don't mean that you're just not a Martian, but I mean, you know, you're human, which means you're vulnerable. There's no temptation taken you, but such as is what? common to man. And so you say, you know what? I've been a Christian now, you know, for, for 10 years and I'm still struggling with this. I'm still struggling with that. Man. I'm, I'm just really strange. And you say, no, listen. Listen to me. 
There's no temptation taken you but such as is what? Common. You're not weird. You're not strange. There's hundreds of thousands of believers across the world who are struggling with what you're struggling with. There's no temptation taken you but such as is common. You know why? Because they're human and what? I'm human. We struggle. I used to think that, you know, that verse, that 1 Corinthians 10, 13, meant that, you know, if I'm struggling, somebody out there somewhere is also struggling with what I'm struggling. You know what I believe now? I believe there's nothing out there, the seeds of which are not also in here. Everything. We already said it before tonight, right? If you committed one, if you breached one commandment, how many of you actually breached? All of them. There's nothing going on out there that's not also in my own heart. So what that means is, I'm human. You know why I need to know that? Because if I don't recognize that I'm vulnerable, I'm even more vulnerable. So I won't take precautions, right? It means because I'm human, practical advice can help me. So when we preach, we may give people practical advice, all right? Like this. I mean, you and I are going to face people. They're going to struggle with addictions. They're going to struggle with relationships. They're going to struggle with things in their life. And sometimes we're going to say to people things like this. Listen. If you take that road home from work, you are going to pass that place where either that stuff or that person is, and you're not going to be able to stop. So go another way home. Don't take that path home. While you still got the strength, go another way. Now, believe it or not, that's in the Bible, right? The book of Proverbs says, do not put your, path on the, do not put your foot on the path of the wicked. Do not even go near the path of the wicked, but turn and go the other direction. Why? Because you're human. Because you're temptable. You're vulnerable. So, because you're vulnerable, practical advice will help you. So, do we give practical advice in sermons? Of course. So, people need to know what to do, and they need to know some of their own nature. They need to know that they are human, and therefore practical advice will help them. But they need to know something else. They are not only human. They are, if they are believers, new creations. This is absolutely vital. Because you need not only to know that you are vulnerable, you need to know that you can have victory. Now, when you tell people that they are new creations in Christ Jesus, many times people just say, I don't feel that way. I mean, I just feel like me. I don't feel like anything new at all. I feel like I just feel like me. At which place we actually have to say, no, you need to believe what the Bible says, not what you feel. And the Bible says you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you need to know what that means. All right. Here again. The big theological lesson for the night, okay? You're actually going to learn some Latin. You ready? Okay. There was a time... Okay, when we were unregenerate, before the Holy Spirit was in us, that there was something true of our nature. We were, according to the Bible, non posse, non pecare. Anybody know what that means? We were not able, anybody know? Not to sin. That was our unregenerate nature. Okay, before the Holy Spirit was in us, we were not able not to sin. Okay? We were corrupt in our nature. We were corrupt in our actions. Even those actions which were done for good, 
were ultimately done for selfish reasons, ultimately. We were not able not to sin. That was our sinful nature when we were united to Adam in our nature. Is that who you are now? I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives where? In me. In the life that I live in the flesh. I actually live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I am a different person. I am able. Not, now, I'm not saying this is not perfectionism. It is saying what the Holy Spirit reveals to us, the Spirit gives us power to overcome. You know this from 1 John, chapter 4th chapter, right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that's in Now you say, no, I'm just weak, I'm sinful. I, I, I can't stop it. I, I, can't, I can't fix it. It's just the way God made me. It's his fault. That is what Satan says. And the Bible says that is a lie. You need to know who you are. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And Satan comes to you and he says, you can't stop, you can't help it, you can't fix it. And the Bible says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. Jesus gave himself for me, but he now lives in me. And greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. If I don't believe that, I've already lost the battle with sin. Right? If you don't believe you can have victory, you've already lost the battle. And what the Bible is saying to you and to me is, listen, you need to know that... I'm not, did I say it's easy? No. There are things that will help us, right? The Christian disciplines, the fellowship of believers, confess your sins to one another, seek help in the church, seek help... But God has given you the ability to respond to His Spirit within the church and within you. And you, listen, all of us, you know, we all have the things we struggle with, and we just sometimes lose hope. And because we lose hope, we lose strength. And what the Bible is saying to you and to me is you need to know something. You need to know who you really are. And who you really are is someone with power that is supernatural. Don't you believe the lie? It says it can't be different. Here's the reality. Tomorrow can really be different than yesterday. It really can. It can really be different. And if you believe that, you have power. The source of Christian power is not only knowing what to do. The source of Christian power is knowing who you are. You're human, so you're vulnerable. But you're also a new creature in Christ Jesus, so you have supernatural power and when you know that, you can have victory. It's what Paul says in Romans 6, right? Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. You are no longer slaves to sin. Now, I have a question for you. If you are no longer a slave to sin, if sin no longer has dominion over you, why do you sin? You know what the answer is? Because you love it. What's the reason that we sin now? Because we have power and we have knowledge. So what's the reason we sin? Because we love it. Now I want you to think for a moment if that isn't true. Listen, if the sin did not attract you, would it have any power in your life? 
hear the question? If the sin did not attract you, would it have any power? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. The only reason that sin has power is because we still love it. So here's the next question. If what gives sin its power is our love for the sin, what is it going to overcome love for sin? What is going to overcome love for sin? A greater love. To use the Pauline language, a surpassing love. Something that's even greater. That's what's going to overcome. So, let's be clear. We said one source of power is knowledge. But you know what the other source of power is? It's real simple. It's love. Listen, I don't mean to be schmaltzy or sentimental, but I mean to be very real. The most powerful human motivation is love. Fear is not more powerful. Guilt is not more powerful. Gain is not more powerful. What drives the mother back into the burning building? It is love. There is no more powerful human motivation than love. And now you're beginning to say, why are we preaching the gospel of grace from all the Bible? What are we actually trying to instill in God's people? Love. Because ultimately, love is power. I already am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Sin already no longer has dominion over me. All I'm really waiting to do is actuate the power that I already have. But the only thing that makes me willing to do that is love for Christ. And so the reason that we are building an understanding of the grace of God in all of Scripture is we're trying to fuel the love for Christ with the grace of God that is in all the Scripture. Look how great is His love for you. Because there's a result. We love God because He first loved us. What am I doing as I preach? I'm showing people the grace of God. He first loved us. All along the way, He was preparing for His Son to come. He was showing, I'm providing for you what you cannot provide for you. I'm giving strength to the weak. I'm giving food to the hungry. I'm giving forgiveness to sinners. Why am I telling you that? So that you will love me. Because when you love me, you'll want to walk with me. Okay? That's John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? Obey my commands. All right. All men here. So I'll tell this story. All right? I can remember... My first date with my wife. You know why I remember? Her parents went along. <laughs> okay. For some of you guys, you know, it just kind of entering the mystery. Here I am. Single guy, little rural church. I'm the new pastor. Okay. So I'm in this little rural church. And um, well, I'm in seminary. This is not the one after seminary. So I'm in seminary. And I'm pastoring this little rural church. And uh, an elder asked me after church service one day, would you like to go on a picnic with my family? Did I mention I was single? Picnic. Food. <laughs> Do I want to go? <laughs> of course. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah, sure, I'll go with you. So, all right, so we go to the picnic. And uh, here we are, if some of you know southern Illinois. We drive up the Great River Road toward Elsa, Illinois. Okay, so El Elsa, Illinois is this is this restored Victorian village, okay? Remember the Victorian homes with all the filigree and the, you know, the colored spires and all that stuff? Okay. Sunny day in the fall, leaves are turning colored, gold, red, 
We built a great river road, the forest on all sides, the limestone cliffs, mile-wide blue river, had this wonderful picnic, and at the end of the picnic, this, this, this young woman says to me, would you like to take a walk with me, daughter of my elder? All right, let me describe this for you again. It's a beautiful sunny day. <laughs> the leaves are turning colors of gold and scarlet. And this young woman, you know, blonde hair, green eyes, red sweater, says to me, would you like to take a walk with me? And I thought to myself, and then I said to her, you bet. <laughs> Of course I want to walk with you. Why? Because she's beautiful. Why are we unfolding the grace of the heart of God in all the Bible? So that when Jesus says, do you want to walk with me? What will our hearts say? You bet. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll, you'll obey my command. You want to walk with me. Because you know I'm not harsh. and You know I'm not one who's seeking your harm. I've showed you my heart. I've showed you my grace. For 2,000 millennia and more, I've unfolded my heart to you and finally sent my son for you as the great apex message of the grace of God. Now you want to walk with me. If we've really understood the grace of God, our hearts respond in love, and the chemistry of the heart is stronger than the math of the mind. And we say, yeah, I want to walk with you. Look at it here. It's item B. Love is power. You already know how this goes. What's the primary reason that we redeem people? Why do you sin, even though you know better and have power? Why do you sin? Because you love it. What is this? How do we overcome love for sin? With a greater love. Some of you already know this. The most famous sermon on this subject probably ever was by a man named Thomas Chalmers. Okay? And the name of the sermon was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It was the idea that if the affection for God fills us up, it will, it will expulse okay, the love of sin. If we're filled up with love for Christ, the love of sin will be forced out. So we say, well, if if a greater love is what gives us power, what's the source of love? That's 1 John 4:19. We love because what? He first loved us. And the reason that we excavate the grace of all of Scripture is because it creates love for Christ. What is the effect of love for Christ? A, holiness, because we will love to walk with Him. It's what Jesus said, John 14:15. If you love me, you want to walk with me. Or Titus 2:11 and 12. This is so strange. The grace of God teaches us to say, anybody know how it goes? No to ungodliness and worldly passion. Oh, I thought the grace of God taught us to go, oh, great, here we go into sin. No. The grace of God actually teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. I'm going to walk with Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus because he loves me so. We want to walk with him. Ultimately, not only does the effect of love create holiness, it creates service. Now, you all know I teach this material about the grace of God in all the scriptures. In a lot of parts of the world, I've taught it enough years that I know the standard objections. 
One objection you already know. People say you can't keep talking about the grace of God because you'll create antinomianism. What's antinomianism? License. No law. Against the law. It says if you just keep talking about grace, you'll teach people to be lawless. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my... I, say, I said, listen, you, know, you, can, you can push your logic all you want, but the heart reacts different than the logic. And Jesus already told me what happens if I love him because of his grace. I want to walk with him. So when people say, <clears throat> you'll create antinomianism, I say, that's not true. The heart does not respond that way. Okay. Second thing people say is this. Listen, you can't keep talking about the grace of God because it creates egocentric Christians. They just care about themselves. You just keep talking about grace. They're like, well, I'm okay with God. You know, I got my insurance policy signed, you know. No, you know, no problem. I'm great. And so they won't care about anybody else because they're just concerned about the grace of God toward them. You know what I say to that? I say that's impossible. Grace does not create egocentric Christians. The people who really understand the grace of God are the most caring people you know. Do you know why? Because if they really love Jesus, they will love what he loves and whom he loves. Who does Jesus love? He loves the unlovely the outcast, the orphan, the widow, the discriminated against, the sick. If you love Jesus, you will love what and whom he loves, right? Jesus says, inasmuch as you have done this unto the least of these, you have done it unto what? Unto me. If you love me, you'll love the ones I love. Other people have said it this way. The source of salvation is grace. The source of ethics is gratitude. I know that I'm okay with God because of His grace. But if I'm truly thankful and loving Him, you know what? I want to treat other people the way He's treating me. Because He loves them, I will love them too. Why do you love your mother-in-law? Well, because my wife loves her. <laughs> I love my wife so, you know. I know that's a silly example. But it really is the example. If you understand how great is his love toward you, you actually want to share his love with others. It does not create egocentric Christians. How do you build love? If we say the effective love is holiness and service, number three is how do we build love for Christ? This last, I know, could be just a, you know, a whole day into itself, but I'm going to say it real quickly. The way that we build love for Christ is by the means of grace. When I use that phrase, means of grace, you know what I'm talking about? Prayer, reading of Scripture, the fellowship and communion of believers. Those are ways that God is communicating His grace to us. So when we say, listen, I, I really want the love of Christ to fill me. How do we help other people and ourselves to love Christ more? It is by proper use of the means of grace, but you have to understand what I'm saying. So many Christians, when you talk about prayer and Bible reading and fellowship of believers, they're not thinking of the means of grace. They're thinking of the means to grace. How do I get God to be gracious to me? Okay, I'll pray more this week. I'll read my Bible. It's been 20 minutes a day. I'll do 30 minutes a day. And we try to bribe the ogre in the sky to be good to us with our means to grace. In which case, all these Christian disciplines, 
are barter. You know what I mean by barter? They're bribes. I'll bribe God to be nice to me, right? I'll bribe God to forgive me. In which case, the things that we're doing are actually abhorrent to God, right? We think we're doing a good thing. You need to know this rule. Good things, the right things, for the wrong reasons are wrong. The right things for the wrong reasons are wrong. And if the reason that we're praying more and reading our Bible more is so that God won't hurt us or will be nice to us or will give us the new Lexus, the prayer may be the right thing. But for the wrong motives, it's the wrong thing. Here's what you need to know about the means of grace. They are not barter. They are not bribes. They are bread. They are nutrients to our hearts and souls where we are, as we study the Scriptures, as we fellowship with believers, as we pray, we are learning more and more of the wonder of the grace of God for us so that our hearts are swelling with love for God. We're not gaining love. We're understanding the love that's already ours. Here's my example. When you run a race, you open your mouth. Do you open your mouth to produce oxygen? <laughs> no, you open your mouth to take in the oxygen that's already there. So many Christians think that they're going to read their Bibles and pray so that they can produce grace. You know, they'll get God to love them. No, listen. All you're doing is you're expanding your heart to the grace that's already there. How much of the love of God does you, do you already have? The infinite love of God. He loves you as much as he loves Christ because whose identity do you have? Christ's identity. You're not going to manufacture more grace by Christian disciplines. You're only understanding, communing with, taking in the wonder of the grace that's already there so that your heart is swelling with love for God, which ultimately becomes your power. Last illustration, and uh, if you've got questions, we'll go there. Here's, here's the way I think of it. All right. My last child is an 18-year-old, okay? So uh, we, have, we have a group of three older kids, and then we have this, this daughter graduating from high school this year. And, um, and sometimes we say with our three older married kids and then our kind of tag-along daughter, we say, you know, we're just tired. <laughs> you know? And uh, we have this sweet-natured daughter, and it's good the Lord gave her to us because we just didn't have strength anymore for our other kids. <laughs> so, but, you know, with this kind of gap in our children... Kathy and I talk about how we have to keep connecting with this daughter, you know, not getting too busy and wound up in other things or just tired. We, we have to keep connecting with this daughter. And um, so one of the things that I do on, uh, on many a morning is that I'll fix her breakfast. Okay, she's going off to school early. I get up early. So I'll fix her just as a way of connecting. I'll fix her breakfast. No great shakes. It's just cereal. Um, you know, so, so here's what I do. As I'm fixing her breakfast, I think to myself, as I'm kind of filling up her cereal bowl with milk, what's my job today? What's my job today as her father? I think as I'm filling up her cereal bowl, my job is to fill up her heart with love for Christ. Why? Because she's 18. And you and I know that there are trials and there are temptations ahead. But if her heart is full of love for Christ, she cannot be more strong or more safe. If her heart is full of love for Christ, she cannot be more strong or more safe. So this is my job. And I will tell you, it's a pretty sweet job. My job is to fill her up with heart, her heart up with love for Christ. Now, a lot of you are going to be preaching. 
And I know there's lots to think about. You know, got to ex- you know, exegete the passage and apply it and so forth. But listen, if you can just kind of back away from it and, and, and back away from the particulars for a little bit, you think, what, what's my ultimate job here? Do people need to know duty and doctrine? Well, yeah, they do. But they also need to be motivated out of a heart of love for God. Have I included that in there? Have I given them the reasons for the duty and the doctrine, which come from the heart of God and His grace toward Have I included that in there? Because my real job, after all, they already knew the duty. They already did. And, and most of the doctrine they already know too. So am I filling their hearts up with love for Christ? Because if their hearts are full of love for Christ, they cannot be more strong or committed or safe. When I started out as a pastor, those of you who are preaching, I'm starting out. Here's what I thought my job was. I thought my job was to get people to do what they don't want to do. Let me tell you something. That is a horrible job. You know what I think my job is now? I think my job is to get people to love Jesus more. That is a sweet job. How do I do that? I show them how great is His love for them. And when they understand how great is His love for them, they will swell with love for Him. And they will do what they already know to do. And they will believe what they already believe. And they will do it in the joy of the Lord that is their strength. The grace of God will be their motivation as well as their power. I'm going to pray with you and then see if you have questions. Father, I thank you for these men who have gathered tonight. What a, what a testimony of your heart already in their hearts, that they want to proclaim your word and they'd come out you know, late on a Friday evening to, to just think about your word for your people. So I pray you'd bless them and help them. And as we're just just touching on these messages that will be really readings and thoughts and many things to percolate on for the rest of their lives, that you would just give them a sense of the sweetness of the duty of the preacher to help people love Jesus more. For when that is their goal, their task will be sweet, and you will give them the power of the Spirit to do your work. So help them, I pray, to see the grace in all the Scriptures fulfilled in Christ, but ultimately made manifest in their messages every day, every day, for the joy and the glory of Christ and His people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I say we got ten minutes, so uh, questions you have. I reckon that I'm just flying through this material, so thoughts that you have or questions you have. Jason, you were asking when we want it break. Did I answer what you were asking, or you want to try again? Right. Great question. Um, for those of you, are any of you preaching from the wisdom literature tomorrow? Are they? Anybody? No, good. I will tell you, I mean, the wisdom, I, I think the, that's for the, in, in plain terms, I think the wisdom literature is the hardest literature in the Bible to preach grace from. And you have to kind of learn to see it 
in terms of how it's unfolding. Um, and, and you have to see there are key portions in the book of Proverbs. And the key one, of course, is chapters 2 and 7 and 8, in which wisdom is personified, but it's always got its source. Okay? Where does wisdom come from in the book of Proverbs? It comes from God. Okay? So it's not coming from us. It's coming from a fatherly God, even to a royal son or others. Okay? It's, it's always God saying, how are you going to make it in the world? Well, you need wisdom from me, not your wisdom. You need a higher wisdom, a greater wisdom. Now, this, this is really grace in just little seed form, okay? This, this is not the full message of the atonement. Again, if the message is, how is God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves? In the book of God, Proverbs, God keeps saying over and over again, you need wisdom greater than you, okay? You, you need my wisdom to make it in the world. And so you're not wise enough, but I'll give you the wisdom you need to make it in the world. Now, all that is, so far, is God just saying, you need more than what you can supply. Now, that is not the full message of the atonement. It's not the full message of the cross. But it is, words we use, it is leading us forward. Okay? So that when you finally get to the book of James, which is the New Testament book of Proverbs, right? James says it very explicitly. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask what? Let him ask of God, who gives what? liberally, generously, and without what? And without reproach, without blaming you. James makes explicit what is implicit in the book of Proverbs, which is God wants you to have wisdom. It comes from him, and he will give it to you generously. You don't deserve it. And without reproach, without judgment against you. Now we're getting much closer to the message of the gospel that this wisdom is from on high, from God, and I have to say, the book of Proverbs, remember one of those categories was preparing me for the message of Christ? The book of Proverbs is prepared. It's not stating fully what the gospel is. It's not. But it's preparing me to understand what Christ must be. So that not only does James say the wisdom is from God, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? Jesus has become for us wisdom from God our holiness, our righteousness, our redemption. So ultimately we understand not only is God providing the wisdom, Jesus is the wisdom that we need. Is that full message in Proverbs? No, it's not. It's not. But what we're understanding is human dependence is what we're understanding in Proverbs on heavenly supply. Human dependence on heavenly supply. And... Uh, if you wanted to read more on this, by the way, have you gotten reading Voss at all? Okay. Uh, if you a book called uh, by uh, by um, Voss, they call, simply called Biblical Theology. If you just read the opening chapter, one of the things he says is he uses that seed terminology. That many times the grace of God is just in what he calls seed form in the Old Testament. So he said it doesn't come to full bloom until you get to the New Testament. But he said the seed is already there. So the notion of, again, the wisdom comes from God. It's not your wisdom. To make it in the world, you need what God provides. It's just the beginning of what you need to know that comes to fuller statement in the New Testament. Jason, just a little bit. Keep reading. You're, you are reading Goldsworthy? No, you're reading Gradanus. So you all can read Goldsworthy and Gradanus and Voss and things like that. But the, the message, again... I encourage you not to try to make Jesus appear everywhere, but rather to say, how is the grace of God being revealed? 
culminates in Jesus. But I'm not trying to find Jesus here. I am trying to find grace here. What sometimes people do is they say, I'm going to tease about it, um, you know, the wood is, you know, the wood is the cross and so forth. And, the, and they really do end up importing the New Testament onto the Old. But there's another mistake. And the other mistake is to, is to go blind to the New Testament, as though it doesn't exist when I'm preaching from the Old Testament. And there I want to say, no, wait a second. I live this side of the cross. You know, I, I know where the story is going, you know. So, you know, I don't have to, you know, read, you know, read the chapter 20 of Moby Dick and say, well, I just don't know what's happening. No, I, you know, I, I know the rest of the story, you know. I know what happens. So when I'm reading, I know that this is in the context of this. And so when I learn, God is teaching his people. Listen, you can't make it in the world just depending on human wisdom. It's so that when we finally get to Christ, he says, I am the wisdom from God. And what does the wisdom of God teach you? Sermon on the Mount. Well, you've heard it said that you should not murder. But I tell you, if you even call your brother fool, you are in danger of hellfire. You've heard that you should not commit adultery. I'll tell you, if you even look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already... That's wisdom from God? I'm in bad shape. That's right, you are. You need the one who is giving you the wisdom from God. And Jesus is revealing who he is as part of that process of wisdom from God. Okay? So we're not importing the New Testament on the Old Testament, but we're also not going blind to where the story goes. We know what we're being led forward to understand and depend upon. Other thoughts? Jim? Well, it's a great question. And you would say, are there passages in which God does things like disciplines his children for their sin? Yes. As a matter of fact, there are. Um, but then you say, all right, what does the book of Hebrews tell me? God disciplines whom? Those that he, that he loves. Now, here's, here's the mistake that people make. They say, well, God punishes his children. Well, actually, he doesn't. Because punishment has to do with penalty. And how much of the penalty of your sin is on Christ? All of it. All of it. So God is never punished. There is therefore now no condemnation. Those are, there's no more punishment for believers. None. Now, is there discipline for believers? Yes. But discipline has an entirely different motivation, right? The goal of punishment is to harm, to penalize people. What is the goal of discipline? To build up, to ultimately produce in us a harvest of peace and righteousness, right? So the goal of punishment is to penalize and tear down. The goal of discipline is to instruct and build up, all right? Which means, is there ever the wrath of God in the Bible? Yes, but for his children, what is the purpose? To turn them from greater harm, to turn them back to the Father, to bring them back to himself. It is not to kind of go, I'm done with you, I'm walking away. 
So it's somewhat saying, even when we see the harsh things, to go back and say, what is the motivation of God here? Because ultimately what he is doing is he is on a path of redemption. Okay? And even as earthly fathers, it's the example in Hebrews, right? Even an earthly father knows how to discipline his children for the sake of the child. So our heavenly father. But he's on a path of redemption. So even when we're looking at those passages where we see, well, the book of Judges we talked about earlier. You know, here's this cycle. You know, they're rescued. They do okay. Then they fall into sin. Then there's punishment, right? And then what? I should have said discipline. Then there's discipline. And then what happens? They're back on the course again, right? And then what happens? And finally we say the whole cycle of Judges doesn't work. So God says, all right. Then you want a king? Fine, choose him. But ultimately, I'm going to have to give you a better judge, a better king, etc. It's saying things in their context. Even the harshness. I've taught this for a while, Jim, so I, you know, they're just examples I know. And so one of my illustrations is this. When people talk about, is God ever harsh in the Bible? I say, yes, of course. But in the sense of this, remember the woman who takes her child to the doctor, right? And, uh, you know, the doctor analyzes little Johnny and says, you know, you're going to have to get a shot. And the mom, to comfort her son, says, Johnny, it won't hurt. <laughs> well, the doctor knows it's going to hurt. <laughs> so the doctor says to the son, he says, he said, listen, son, he says, uh, I may hurt you, but I will not harm you. What does God say to us at times in his discipline? I may hurt you, but I will not harm you. Because I'm your father. Nothing happens now except from the hand of a loving father. Even though it may be harsh for the moment, it will ultimately produce a harvest of peace and righteousness, which is his goal. So um, another little, my little rubric says, you know, when people say, well, these awful warnings. You know, God says, if you do this, this. I said, well, listen, if God didn't love you, he wouldn't warn you. <laughs> right? If he didn't love you, he wouldn't warn you. So it's backing up and seeing things in their redemptive context that helps us say even the harsh thing with the right timbre, as it were, or just say, you know, I, I sometimes think people they don't understand what they're saying. You need to love God or he is going to damn you to hell. Well, you know, what you just did was you made it impossible for me to love him. Right. If you say you love me, or I'm going to smack you. Well, I, I can't love you then. You know, it's impossible. Right. So so we have to make sure that what we are saying to people comes in the context of God revealing warning, but he only does that at a heart of love for his people. If we don't say that, then we present things in exactly the opposite context that he intends. So redemptive context is keeping us right. I'm going to do one more thing, and then we'll let you go home, okay? It's just remembering this. When we apply any text, all right, application, when you are doing application tomorrow and any day, you're always doing four things. You're saying what to do, okay? That's just the duty and doctrine. You're also saying where to do it. Where in your life would it make a difference, right? Because the preacher doesn't say, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, you say, well, no, if even the preacher can't figure out where this makes a difference, you know, how are the people? So you say what to do and where to do it. But you know what all that's about? Why? And ultimately, how? Most preachers get these two. Many, many preachers forget these two. And what grace-oriented preaching is doing is it's saying, because he loves you, and when your heart is great in love for him, 
a surpassing love will actually give you power to. You will do what you know to do if you have a greater love for him. So the reason to keep grace on the page is so that we will keep these two pieces in play with these two pieces. Everybody knows to do these two. They often forget about these two. But the grace of God will keep you saying, why, why, why? Because he loves you. I'm done, Chet. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.